This is the Sports Psychology Hour with Dr. Andrew Jacobs on Sports Radio 810 WHB. What I've done is help athletes be the best they can be. We work on giving you that winning edge, that mental edge that will help you realize your potential. Dr. Jacobs has been in practice for over 30 years as a sports psychologist. This is the first time I've ever listened to it. I'm on my way to church, and I said, i got to pull over and talk. Right now is your chance to call Dr. Jacobs for free help with any sports-related problem. It's a wonderful form, and I, I must be a radio for me every time I, I'm in the camp city. This show is about you. It's about having fun, working hard, building self-confidence, having the right attitude, being a good teammate, being a good parent, and being a good coach. Now, here's the sports psychologist, Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Good morning, everyone. I am sports psychologist, Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and welcome to our show here on Sports Radio 810 WHB, the home of the world's happiest broadcasters going back to the 1960s. Station I used to listen to growing up and a station I've now been hosting on for the last 16 years. Enjoy doing this show with you every Sunday morning. It is the Sports Psychology Hour, and we talk about your mindset on this show. We talk about attitudes and focus and confidence, the coach-athlete relationship. We talk about the world of sports and the mental side of sports and what goes on with that. And, you know, every week I try to bring up topics that will be interesting to you, our listeners, and it never fails, never fails for a topic to come up during the week that will be an excellent one for us to to discuss on this show. And as you know, I've been here the last 16 years. I've been on the radio here in Kansas City now for 26 years and been in practice as a sports psychologist since 1981. And I've had the privilege to work with so many tremendous people throughout my career here in Kansas City and around the country, working with the Olympic team, professional teams, collegiate teams, high school teams, club teams. I have a private practice here on the Country Club Plaza where I see individual athletes, I come out and talk to teams and groups all the time. And each week I find some topics that I think will be of interest to everybody. And, you know, uh, I co-authored a book this past year with former Royals Hall of Famer Jeff Montgomery and Olympic Hall of Fame sw- swim coach Pete Malone. And Pete's going to be joining me in a few moments this morning to talk with us today. I haven't really had him on the show in a long time. One of my good friends, man I admire tremendously, gave me a chance to work with his team, work with his team for 27 years. And uh, maybe some of the most fun times I've had was working with the Kansas City Blazers swim team because I got to meet so many cool people. And my younger son, Gregory, went through the entire program, swam until his senior year at New York University, and to this day, he's now 26 years old, applies a lot of the things he learned with the Blazers to his success that he's having now uh, in his career. So we're going to talk with Pete in a moment, but I've I've asked Pete to come join us this morning for this reason. In the past couple weeks, there's been more talked about about Dr. Larry Nassar, the team doctor for USA Gymnastics, who has been accused of inappropriately touching a number of the gymnasts that he was working with as the team doctor for United States Gymnastics. That is going, that, that court case is going on. He worked for USA Gymnastics for 29 years, including four Olympics, and was charged with three counts of first-degree sexual conduct with a person younger than 13. And this, this year, 23 new criminal charges involving seven alleged victims, all minors, were filed against him. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that this, is, this went on for so long. 
And now this past week, we found a coach in Denver, a cheerleading coach named Ozell Williams, was fired for forcing screaming cheerleaders to do the splits, forcing them. And there's video that's emerged about this. A young lady named Allie Wakefield, 13 years old, screaming in agony as he and cheerleaders held her into the splits position during a training session earlier this summer. And this man's been fired. And then it comes out that, that he was fired previously from, a, from another job. All right. So you've got young people who are entering athletics and moving up the ladders, some of whom become successful, some of whom drop out. You have people involved in sports who are role models, who are guides. Our book, Just Let Him Play, which we wrote together, Pete, Jeff, and I wrote. Uh, we've had great feedback on from so many people. Talks about all of this. Talks about the coach's role. Talks about the role of parents. It talks about the role you all have in the world of sports. And making it fun. Making it enjoyable. And you have people like this who ruin it. Why would a coach force a 13-year-old girl, force her, physically force her to do the splits? That is physical abuse. And yet he's done it before, and he got away with it. And then he gets rehired by another, another school district, both in Denver. He was fired from Boulder High School in 2016. All right, so the question is, why does this happen? And my good friend Pete Malone is going to join us in a moment, and Pete knows a lot about dealing with things like this. He coached for, I guess, for over 40 years now. I mean, I'll have Pete say exactly how many years he coached, but coached a long time, coached thousands of kids, and he understands this. So my good friend Pete Malone is joining us now. Peter, how are you today, my friend? Morning, Dr. Jacobs. Good to be with you. I'm glad I got you out of bed at an early hour. Well, even in Papa land, I still get up pretty early, so it's not that inconvenient. Yeah. We only have grandchildren here for breakfast on the weekdays, and we take them to school. So you're just making my Sunday a little special. Well, thank you, my friend. Listen, thanks for, for joining us. And uh, as I said, you, you assisted uh, me and Jeff Montgomery. The three of us wrote our book, Just Let Them Play, Guiding Parents, Coaches, and Athletes Through Youth Sports. Uh, it came out last year. And, you know, you and I both talked about it a lot. Obviously, we've had a lot of good feedback on it. But the role of coaches, Pete, the role of parents, the role of officials, the role of athletes, that it all fits together and affects the athlete. And these stories that I just shared, this this story about this, this cheerleading coach in, in Colorado, in Denver, that forced these girls to do the splits, and that's physical abuse. Now, you coached athletes. You coached Olympians. You coached, and you and I have talked about it, you know, hundreds of kids who went on to swim in college. And your program was the premier swim, swim club in the country for years. And when you retired, it was at the, at the top of being one of the best programs around because of the innovations and the ideas that you had to make the team and the program successful. But when it comes to abusing athletes, now, you know, abusing athletes is a pretty severe thing to push a kid, a child, to do something that they don't want to do. Now, as a swim coach, you had to push kids to swim through pain. That was an issue. You know, we talk about the pain threshold of swimming in running and cycling in any endurance sport. There is a pain threshold. And you have to understand as a coach, where is the pain 
something that they can work through or where is it something that's detrimental? And you had to understand that as a coach. So let me ask you, first of all, in light of these two things I mentioned, Dr. Larry Nasser, the gymnastics doctor who's been accused of inappropriately touching all these gymnasts, and, and, it, and it's a whole bunch of them, not just two or three. There's several dozen. And then you have this cheerleading coach in Colorado who physically forced these girls to do the splits. There's video of it. Let's get your opinion on this, and let's talk about why do people do things like this in, in the athletic field. Well, my first comment is let's realize that those are two sick, significantly different cases. Uh, both of them are completely wrong, but I feel the role of a doctor or a team physician or a team trainer or anybody that's working from that capacity, such as what you did with me, you worked with me as a sports psychologist, you were part of my team of people I put together to assist our athletes, okay? You know, and you still, you don't give up your professional uh, responsibilities from your Hippocratic Oath, okay? So I feel, you know, the doctors in many ways is far more severe than what I find in the uh, cheerleading coach. But I find them both be deplorable. But it, the one common thing that links them is sports. The second common thing is that they're, it, it's both females that are involved here. And the third common thing that is involved that parents in their own way, shape, and form, somewhere between age 12 and 13, allowed this to happen at a time where, as I used to say, the kids didn't have the car keys yet. Um, and as life changes in family homes so much after the kids start driving and they start striving, it kind of reflects their time of taking more independence and more, more direct ownership for what they're going to do, what they can do, what they want to do. But up to that point, that privilege is, is completely fed by the parents and in many ways in their hands. But let me ask you this question, okay, because you coached for how many years? Over 40 years, right? How many years did you coach? 45. 45 years. All right, and, and you and I both know we had issues with, with situations that where we had to deal with with a sexual abuse situation at one point. I mean, there, there are things that go on that, unfortunately, in life we have to deal with. And so in these situations here, this cheerleading coach physically forcing these girls to do something like that, where, where this one girl is, is, has been injured. I mean, that's, that's physical abuse. You have the doctor inappropriately touching young girls. But no one said anything with the gymnast for years. Now, in the cheerleading case, it came out, but this happened back in June. It's just coming out now, two months later. There's a fear, I think, with athletes to speak up about adults who may be doing something they don't agree with for fear that they're going to be ridiculed or made fun of or picked on or that they're not right. Do you agree with that? Totally agree with that. But I also qualify by saying that is that's kind of where they're at in their growth cycle as well. So they're prone to that because they're still at that point where they have not completely grown to their independence. So, it, so it's very important that parents and other administrators pay very close attention because they need to be protecting them during that period of time because they still are not – just think where they're at in their physical growth cycle, but also think where they're at in their emotional 
and cultural growth cycle. Okay. okay, okay, but let me let me throw this out at you, okay? Because this is something you and I have talked about for years. I mean, I work with it you for. It does not two- justify either of the actions. What it does say is people that are in charge of these employing these people, or the people that are are their parents. How can you not be paying close enough attention? And you have a huge responsibility to be doing that and questioning. Okay, so we've got these situations, and there are all kinds of others we could get into, too. All right, and, and to me, I think the word that keeps popping up as I'm listening to you talk, Pete, is the word fear. Okay, athletes are scared to speak to young athletes younger than 15, 16 years of age, I think are scared to, to speak up. They don't want to lose their spot on the team. They want to please the coaches. They want to please their parents. They don't want to get in trouble. And so they're scared. They're scared to say something. If something is, is going on that's wrong, they are oftentimes scared to speak up. Yet I have had high school athletes in my 36 years of work. I have had a number, I mean, double-digit numbers of high school athletes who have come into my office who have been verbally and physically abused by coaches, but they are scared to say anything because they don't want to lose their spot on the team. There is a high school basketball coach in this city who has verbally and physically abused players, and he's still coaching. Now, I'm getting it second and third hand from the athletes and their parents, but the things they've told me have recurred over and over. But you know what the, the, the reason they don't say anything, Pete? They're scared because they don't want to be kicked off the team. They don't want to lose their spot on the team. So what do we do about that? You coached for 45 years. What do we do about that? There were kids who were scared of you. You know that, and I know that, because you pushed them. But you pushed them to be the best in pursuit of excellence. You didn't push them over the edge. Well, I'm not here to sell my program, but I am here to sell my principles and values, okay? And, but I will say that we tried to put the safeguards into place that allowed the children to grow not just physically and not just in, in performance and how they went through the process, but we also wanted them very much to grow emotionally. And we, as I used to say, they're the only person on top of that black line, and they have to own it. And we can't just all of a sudden wake up when they're 16 and tell them, okay, it's time for you guys to own it. We've owned it up till now. Um, and I, as they did get older, it was easy to explain to them, they're, you're the only person in that, that lane, and you're the only person standing up on that block, and you must own this. And, and it's your level of ownership that really puts you in a position to realize what I call the 99 percentile of your potential. And so, you know, we had a system to try to evolve that versus expect it just to show up. Um, Obviously, parents need to drive them to practice. Parents need to pay the money if in the case of most activities these days. And, you know, people – and. And if their parents decide they're not going to be in gymnastics or they're not going to be in cheerleading, there's not much that a 9- or 10- or 11-year-old can do about that, okay? And so you got to understand that that's where it all goes. Now, on the other side of this thing, piece of the sandwich, anybody that is a coach, an administrator, a doctor, or have any other role, they have to understand they follow, they follow the same consequences of any teacher or any principal or anybody that's involved in this educational process. It's immense. You know, just think how 
the role of, you know, the rules and regulations we have for daycare. And somehow or another, even though all these rules existed, what really bothers me about this cheerleading coach is somewhere along the line, these things aren't applying. And this this is not a 15-year-old or 16-year-old girl, or it appears this guy works with – I tried to do a little homework yesterday – you know, mostly he was working with the, those young girls developing to be cheerleaders so that they would ultimately make the cheerleading team or be in competitive cheerleading, which is a sport, um, you know, when they got to be in high school. And obviously with the ambition to possibly move further than that, you know, um, it just doesn't happen. I mean, I understand pushing athletes. And I really had to push them. But how we push somebody who's 10 years old and how I push somebody who's 15 or 16, but even when they were 15 or 16, I used to, in my own measurement system within my elite group, there were those that had world-class ambitions. There were those that wanted to get to the 99 percentile of their potential. Both of those are identical, but sometimes somebody just wants to be a great high school swimmer or somebody just wants to experience doing the best they can do, which is the same, but, but there's a different realm if you decide you want to climb that ladder, what I call the world level of, of swimming or sport. you know. And so maybe there might be some separation there, but even then, you don't start pushing them until they take the ownership themselves. Okay, let me so they let, own that black line. Let me let me throw this at you. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Joining me is Olympic Hall of Fame swim coach Pete Malone, co-author with Jeff Montgomery of our book "Just Let Them Play: Guiding Parents, Coaches, and Athletes Through Youth Sports." And we're talking about the situation that just popped up this past week about uh, cheerleading coach in Denver who forced uh, 13-year-old girls trying out for the cheerleading team to do the splits, physically forcing them to do the splits when they couldn't do it, and one girl is it was severely hurt by this. So we're talking about the issue of, I think, the coach's role and your role as a parent. So I want to open up our phone lines, Pete. Let's get some calls in here. I want to hear from you if you're a coach. I want to hear if you're a parent, if you're an athlete, okay, about abuse. Have you been in a situation where you have seen abuse before? Have you seen verbal abuse before? Have you even seen physical abuse before? And did you do anything about it? Were you afraid to do anything about it? Did it happen? Why did it happen? What are the reasons? Our number is 913-3810-810. This is a very touchy subject, obviously, but it is one that goes on. Like I've said, I have athletes that come into my office every year, and I only see a small percentage of people compared to how many people play sports. I mean, you know, one billionth of a percent of people who play sports. But I get kids in my office who have been abused. I had a high school basketball player had an assistant basketball coach on his team throw a basketball at him and hit him in the back of his head. Happened several times. The head coach didn't want to admit it. And this, this young man complained, ended up transferring to a school on the Missouri side from Kansas so he could keep playing. I mean, these things happen. There was another high school basketball coach who's still coaching in town who was forcing athletes to lift weights above their head in a situation as punishment. And one young man on this team threw the weights down, cursed the coach out, and left because he said, I'm not a basketball player, I'm a baseball player. This is going to hurt my baseball career. I mean, there are things that go on that go over the edge. And so I want to hear from you. If you are a parent, if you're a coach, if you're an athlete, if you have witnessed this, if you have seen this, what do you do about it? Our number is 
888-3810-810. Joining me is my good friend Pete Malone. We're talking about this. Pete coached for 45 years. He coached swimmers for 45 years. So here's the question, Pete. Where does mental toughness turn into mental abuse? Well, it's a fine line like many things. And, um, you know, so I wish I could tell you that it's as clear as a button, but it is not the same not, it's not that same spot for every individual, but I do think the role of a coach who takes on this this wonderful profession or, or even a doctor in the medical world, you know, it's a question of how much do you, you know, when you prescribe medicines, you know, you have to analyze body size. You analyze so many factors when you're looking at that patient, and, um, and it's not always exactly the same, and, and certain drugs don't affect affect everybody the same well it goes on here too that i wish it's as as simple as a formula but you have to be able to trust the children to be able to say not now they need to put a stop sign up and that i believe has to be taught at home and and coaches have to know how to listen and um and and i think that's got to be part of the training program you know, when you go into a doctor, since we're going to be we're talking about a doctor here, you can go in. The doctor diagnoses everything, puts together a protocol for what you need to do. Um, but if you don't go to the pharmacy and fulfill the prescription, you know that was your choice. That was your ownership. If you have the prescription at home and you don't use it, that's also your ownership. But you know that's. You might say, well, you're not following what the doctor said you needed to do. Well, I look at it as you own it. You make the decision whether you want to take that step. And you have to teach your children to do that. you got to expect them to do that. And you got to make sure you have an environment where they feel they can speak up. And if they can't speak up to their coach or their teacher, they certainly got to be able to speak up to their parent and they got to be able to do that, and that starts at a very, very young age, giving them that confidence that they can speak and somebody's going to listen. Okay, you coached for so many years, and you dealt with so many different people. You coached Olympians, you coached weekend warriors, you coached all kinds of people. Where does the, where does the topic of fear of speaking up come in? Where does the issue of, of afraid to say, you had athletes that were afraid to talk to you. You were a dominating guy, you know that. You had kids that were afraid to talk to you. You had an open-door policy, but people were intimidated by you because you had a very strong personality as a coach. So how do you get them to trust you in those situations and be able to come to you? Or if there's something going on that is inappropriate or wrong, maybe with an assistant or something like that, to be able to come to you, where does that door get opened, and how can you encourage athletes or parents to come talk to you if there is something going on that's not right? Well, that's... One of the reasons in 1983 I hired this guy called Dr. Andrew Jacobs to help me um, at that point of my career and and the program's development to provide education to the parents, education to the kids at all the levels of our program. And you know we put together a program from where you spoke to the young athletes, but more importantly you spoke to the parents at that young athletes groups, and that's where most of our energy was. And we tried to create that environment. And one of the words I would always explain when people say, well, why do we have him working with us? I said, because he's a different voice. And he's not one that you're looking at, that you're counting on for your performance. Your motivation was 100% for those families and for those kids. 
And I felt that helped create the idea of how important that was. And in my brain, it was like it created a safe space. And and then, you know, we certainly took the advice you gave, both whether it be to the staff or to myself, and I digested it and I tried to figure out how we could do a better job of putting it into the program. And there was a thing that when I started the club in 1975 and we were establishing our goals and establishing our vision, establishing values, which, again, this is, these are all very important things. Goals are easy. Getting a vision clarified and values clarified and principles clarified is extremely challenging, and you need to be involved in activities that that can be pretty well seen and it's, it can be pretty well explained. But one of the really tenets of the program was that everything we did needed to be measured against the principle of being educationally sound. So, well, you had it, but you see, okay, you had a vision. Now, let's face it, that vision has not been continued in that program, and it doesn't go on in a lot of programs. As a parent listening to our show this morning, if you're questioning whether your son or daughter has been verbally abused by a coach, what would you suggest to that parent to do to talk with that, that athlete about it and try to figure it out? Well, the first thing you find out is do you feel you can talk to your coach? Do you feel you can say something to your coach? And what happens after that, okay? And when they tell you they can't say to, anything to my coach because they won't listen or they don't give me the time, then you know you got a problem. Or you certainly have maybe not have a problem, but you certainly got a, a red mark that tells you, I better check in here, okay? Because when the coach – because, you know, you ask simple questions such as, what did the coach say to you today? What – you know – you know, how did you feel today? Whatever went on, you know what I mean? And you have to feel, both as a parent and as a coach, I mean, an athlete, that you can ask questions and that you truly listen to, okay? Now, you can't do that in the middle of the game. You can't do that in the middle of practice. you got to realize, like in my sport, you know, my head coach at a site had 150 kids coming through there every night, okay? But there are you you got to set up that process. But an athlete should be able to walk up to their coach, shake his hand, fist bump him, do whatever it is to say, I'm, I'm going home, thanks for my practice. And that's one of the things I always encourage people to do because right there creates an eye-to-eye contact and also establishes the coach is. You know, I'm right now picking up my grant, which I pick up kids after school, and and the kindergarten, and I got the same kindergarten teacher who had one of my other grandchildren a few years ago, and she has the greatest way of releasing the kids from the classroom. Every kid has to line up. Every kid has to either give her a high five, give her a hug, do something, and then they go to their parent, and they have to identify them. Now, that system is good. It might be good for safety, but it's also good that it brings that relationship together. You've got to create systems like that. When those things are missing, you, you as a parent should be questioning. Okay, I think that's awesome. But let me, let me throw this out at you before we go to, to a break here. The whole, the whole issue of fear of speaking up, and you, you know exactly what I'm talking about here as a coach. 
you have athletes, you have parents who are afraid to say anything because they may feel their child may may lose their spot on the team. They may not be treated fairly, and you know, even though they're not being treated fairly, they will feel that something's not going to be done right to, to keep their starting spot. So they won't speak up. And I encourage, you know, I've had the 36 years I've worked as a sports psychologist. I have had dozens of parents who have talked to me about coaches who have done things that they're just wrong. And I will encourage them to speak up. But it's amazing to me how many of them are scared to say anything because they feel it will jeopardize their child's spot on the team, even though there's verbal abuse going on. So what do you right. say? What do you say to those parents, Pete? Well, right there, you just said the parents out of balance because they're more concerned about their spot on the team than the appropriate behavior to, with their child. That is, you're out of balance. The water's too hot. Okay. Not the right temperature to cook success. Okay? And all this needs to be defined. As you know, we talked, you had a tremendous preseason meeting every year with all your your athletes and the parents. I attended them several times with, with from when Gregory swam with you. And you went over everything. And you, you opened up the door for anybody to ask things. And that, as you know, in our book, Just Let Them Play, we encourage coaches to have a preseason meeting and do that. But it's amazing how many don't. And it's amazing to me this whole fear thing comes into play, and you just said it's out of balance. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. My guest this morning is Olympic Hall of Fame swim coach Pete Malone, coach the Kansas City Blazers here in Kansas City for over 40 years. And we want to open up our phone lines. We're talking about this whole topic of abuse, coaching abuse, all right, because we had a situation this past week in Colorado where a cheerleading coach was fired for physically forcing girls to do the splits and actually injuring them, forcing them to do something they weren't ready to do. He's now been fired. But these things go on quite a bit. Physical and verbal abuse goes on. And I'd like to open up our phone lines, and I'd like to hear from someone who feels maybe as an athlete you were abused by a coach, verbally or physically. As a parent, I'd like to hear from you if you feel your child has been abused, specifically verbally or physically. And as a coach, if you have seen any type of abuse go on, what did you do about it? I know this is a very sensitive topic, but it's one we need to address because this stuff goes on. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Our phone number is 913-3810810. My guest is Pete Malone. Give us a call and let's talk. We're on the leader in sports, Sports Radio 810 WHB. Good morning, everyone. I am sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. I'm here every Sunday morning here on Sports Radio 810 WHB from 7 to 8 a.m. And we talk about topics on this show about the mental side of sports and everything related to psychology, sociology, confidence, preparation, attitude, focus, the coach-athlete relationship. And today joining me is my good friend Pete Malone, Olympic swim coach in the Hall of Fame and a coach who coached for 45 years, a man who coached you know, athletes at all levels in swimming, five gold medalists in the Olympics, and, uh, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of kids who went on to swim in college, including my youngest son, Gregory. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Pete and, and uh, the relationship we've had. I worked with his team for 27 years, and 
we're talking about the topic this morning of abuse. In light of what happened in Colorado this past week where their cheerleading coach was fired for physically forcing 13-year-old girls to do the splits when they couldn't do them, damaging these girls physically, he's now lost his job. And, and it's the second time this has happened, both in the Denver area, which is interesting in, in and of itself that it's happened now twice. So we want to open up our phone lines. I, this is a touchy subject, and I know people may be scared to talk about it, but I want to hear from you if you feel your son or daughter has been verbally abused by their coach. I want to hear from you if you're an athlete and you feel like you've been verbally abused by a coach. And I'd like to hear from you if you're a coach and you've seen other coaches verbally or physically abusing a child. What did you do about it? If you're a league official, this has happened. What do you do about it? Our number is 913-3810-810. No one's called in yet about this. I know it's a touchy thing to talk about, but I'd like to hear from you. I know these things go on all the time, and a lot of it, Pete, in my opinion, is because of coaches' egos, about coaches losing their focus, losing perspective on what they're there to do. You know, I have a saying, a good coach checks his or her ego at the door, and a good coach is a good psychologist, a bad coach needs a sports psychologist. You and I worked together for 27 years. We've been friends forever. We co-wrote our book with Jeff Montgomery, you know, the last couple years, which is out now, and this is a topic that obviously is a sensitive one for a lot of people. So if you have a parent who is suspecting there might be some kind of abusive situation going on with their child, verbally or physically, what do you suggest the parent do to find out about it, Pete? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is make sure you're talking with your own athlete, okay? And 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 the big thing is the ability to that they should be able to explain versus accusing them that their coach is doing it. Ask them to describe how they see their their coach and what do they think they're hearing from their coach. Um, A lot of people thought a lot of times when I was being after a race or even at practice, what was going on, you know, people thought I was not, not just domineering, but, Maybe abusive. Let's just say it, okay? But they really didn't know what was being said. Well, who who are you saying thought that? The athletes or the parents? Well, I think some of the parents sitting in the stands, okay, or some, or maybe somebody from another person's team or whatever. But they're really not hearing the conversation. And well, you, excuse me, I'm going to interject. You are a very animated, demonstrative person. You wear your your emotions, your feelings, your thoughts out on your sleeve, and you were not afraid to tell athletes how they felt. Sometimes that got intense, but you didn't go over the edge, in my opinion, in in an abusive way. No, I don't think I did either. No, you didn't, in my opinion. Did I I possibly do it some here here or there? Yeah, but then I usually corrected it once. If I had an intense moment with with an athlete, I would reevaluate it at the end of whatever I was at. And if I felt that there was something that was wrong, then I went right back to the athlete and let them know where I was wrong, okay? Now, that's my system. It's called checks and balance. But I think, it, you know, but it, the key is that I would say the vast majority of parents or anybody else that would have talked to my athletes, they would say, well, he told me what I did was wrong. And... And that you say, well, God, can he do it in a positive way? And I would say frequently, 
to somebody, I said, I'm positive what they did was wrong. What I'm positive about is I'm trying to get them to do it right. Okay, I had a situation a few years ago with a uh, 12-year-old boy who played football. And he had a coach who cursed him out as a 12-year-old because he screwed up. He made a mistake. And the parent then went to the coach and said, you know, I don't appreciate the way you talk to my son. And his response was, hey, Todd Haley does it. If you wanted to be a man, we got to do it like Todd Haley. All right? Well, first place is you don't coach 10-year-old athletes that are playing football like you coach professional athletes that are signing contracts for a minimum salary of $700,000, okay? And because they've taken a whole different level of ownership to the game. The, the game is long before them has changed from being a game to being a, a job. And when it, when you must continue to look at when you're looking at whether it's a cheerleading or a gymnastics or a swimmer, that this is an activity, and this activity might lead to bigger and better things, and we are doing it because it's a vehicle to educate them. It's a vehicle to help them grow and learn about their potential, their dreams, their ability to develop work-goal relationships, their ability to understand where their limits are. But again, not for us to dictate that. We need to provide, the, we're the vehicle, you know? We're not, we're not the engine, you know? They need to be the engine put in that car, and they are the driver of that car. But I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, well, it does to me, obviously, because I've known you forever. But the fact of the matter is, if you have an athlete who feels he, he or she is being verbally abused by a coach, but they're scared to say anything, Okay, and they 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 don't speak up. All right, the coach obvi- the coach obviously has to have some awareness of what's going on. I call it the teeter teeter totter of life. Is there isn't a teeter totter? You know, it's out of balance. One's up and one's down. Okay. Yeah, and I well you know, and here's here's the thing. I get this from people all the time. Well, Doc, you know, we're 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 teaching our kids to be weak. We don't teach them to be strong. They've got to learn toughness. They've got to learn how to handle adversity. They've got to learn how to handle failure. They've got to learn how to handle situations where everything isn't, you know, peaches and roses and ice cream. It's got to be thorns, and they have to fall down. And I go, yes. And in our book, you know, our third chapter is my favorite chapter, Embracing Failure Can Lead to Fun. You have to learn how to fail, but there's a way to do it in a constructive, positive way than in a destructive, negative way. And oftentimes I think that's where a coach's ego gets involved, and they lose perspective. Get your thoughts. Well, my thoughts are everything you said in the early stages that coaches say why they did those things are all good things that you, we should be trying to teach if that's what that person signed up for. And if they look at sports or what you're providing, is that's part of their process. They might be learning that in a different environment. Number two is that it's not that that's not true, but it's got to be healthy. It's got to be educationally sound. You know what I mean? And you know, it's we, you use Todd Haley as an example. You've had him. You've discussed him a lot on your radio show over the years. Your position on how he conducted himself. Well, because because oh. I really excuse hey. me because I really had problems okay. with the way he and talked I'm to players. Reporting you on that, okay? And he's doing a great job at Pittsburgh, but he's not the head guy. You understand me? And he's back to being just the teacher and the person calling the play. Which is where where he fits in much better, obviously. That, that's what I want to point out, okay? He changed 
tremendously because if you would have the reason he got the job he was considered to be a player's coach okay he couldn't coach the coaches and he couldn't handle the stress of when it was all on his back and looked at as being he was in charge of every different aspect. But you know what's interesting about that? You say he was a player's coach. I remember when Arizona played in the Super Bowl, and he was screaming and yelling at uh, one of the wide receivers. I can't remember who. I think it was Antoine Bolden on the sideline or Larry Fitzgerald, one of the two of them, going ballistic on him. And, And then they hired him as the head coach here, and I was like, what are they doing? This guy doesn't know how to communicate very effectively. And you've seen, you, you know, you've seen it. This, there was a playoff game a couple years ago between the Packers and the Seahawks. The Seahawks were, it was in Seattle. The Seahawks were way behind, way behind. And Green Bay is on, on the uh, receiving end of an onside kick. Seattle kicks the, the, the ball. It goes through a, a Green Bay player's hands off his helmet. He's a backup tight end. He didn't, he didn't obviously mean to do that, but he did it. Seattle recovers the ball. Seattle went on to win. Well, anyway, they they scored. He goes to the sidelines on that play as as Green Bay rec- or Seattle recovers the ball. The special teams coach ripped his helmet off and was in this guy's face screaming, basically spitting at him. He was so angry at him. This player sitting on the on the bench, his he- head in his hands, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, that makes a lot of sense. The game's far from over. There's like two and a half minutes left, I think. And he's going to probably have to get back out there again. And now he's been berated by this guy to the point that he feels terrible. What is the benefit of that? I mean, that it, it wasn't abuse, but it, it was it was so negative and so condescending. This guy had to go back out, and he did go out back out and play again. And you could see he he, he mentally was gone. So you, as a coach, have to understand the the parameters that you had the the that you are, are working under. You have to understand the guidelines, in my opinion. And that, to me, comes back to your ego. You know, our number here is 913-3810-810. Let's get some calls in here. It's a good conversation Pete Malone and I are having about this. Where is the point where you go over the line? I mean, Pete, what do you think? you see what I'm saying there? I see what you're saying, and I totally agree with you. And I guess it, I, it's the responsibility of the coaches and the people that help educate them to become coaches and people that oversee their, what they're doing. You know, obviously the Chiefs organization made a decision. Obviously, he, he left here, Todd Haley, and he's being successful in Pittsburgh in his role, okay? But, again, we don't know and can't measure how much he's learned. The problem is he should have learned a lot of this long before he got into that position of being our head coach. Again, I, I agree. Let, let, we've got a call on here, Pete. Let's go to the phones. Let's see what Tony has to say. Tony, good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, um, I'm going to speak to the uh, youth uh, soccer. Um, I've been coaching youth soccer, and also I referee youth youth soccer. And um, something I'd like to hear you guys talk about is the parents that are somewhat abusive or really close to being abusive. They're driving their kids. They're um, just yelling at them from the sidelines, just things that – as a referee and as a coach, I think are, are inappropriate. And I can see where the kid is being tore down and, um, and, and is probably going to leave the game. Um, and I, I, I'll listen off the air. Well, hold, no, no, no don't, don't hang up. Don't hang up, Tony. I want to ask you something first before Pete comments here. First of all, this is why we wrote our book, okay, just to throw a plug in for our book, but it's why we wrote it. Um, right. But what specifically have you seen? Give us an example of something that you've seen uh, where you could describe this behavior. 
No, I mean, you, you know, the, the dad standing on the, the sideline, you know, yelling, Johnny, you should have done this. You, should, you know, and, and you can see the kid just deflate as the dad continues to escalate and continues to focus on his kid. And, and I think what bothers me the most, you know, especially when I'm the referee out there and, and, and I'm watching and listening to everything that's going on is there's really no positive input. It's, it's always identifying the negative and, and, and addressing that. And I, I just, I mean, I know I've seen coaches, believe me, I've seen coaches run kids from the game because of their behavior. Um, but like I said, I wanted to, to just get your guys. Well, let me, I'm going to have Pete comment. I'm going to have Pete comment after I ask you one question. Have, and I talk about this all the time. Have you ever thought about bringing a couple bags of Tootsie Pops to the game and giving them to the coaches to hand to the parents? No, but it's not a bad idea. Why don't you do that? Are you, you're still refereeing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The next game, the next next time you ref, bring a couple bags of lollipops or Tootsie Pops and give them to the coach on each side and say, you know what? I'd like you to hand these out to your parents today and see what happens. Just do it and see okay. what happens and call call back. Now, let me, let me have Pete go ahead and comment. Pete, go ahead. Let me first qualify that I'm, I, I like to think that I, I sit in Papa Row at a lot of soccer games. In fact, I'm going to one this afternoon. Um, of my seven grandchildren, uh, I have five of them playing soccer, um, and two of them play it at the, at the club level, and the rest play it at the recreational level. And, and I'm very impressed with the sport. I'm very impressed with how the referees conduct themselves. I, I like what I'm seeing and learning, and I hear what he's saying. And, you know, in my situation, and I think you can do it in soccer, is you can do it in any sport, is that the coach has to have the right to, to invite a parent not to be at the game. If he can't conduct himself in a suitable fashion, he should be invited to not be there. And I certainly have had to invite different parents not to be at the swim meet, okay? And doesn't mean okay, how, how do you do that? How do you do that, though? You I mean, you just go up and say, hey, don't show up. <laughs> I mean, what a, do you do? Well, I don't do it in front of everybody else, but I have a private meeting, and if they do come, they've already knew the consequence. They're ch- they're, they need to find another program for their child because I will not be part and cater to that abuse. You know, and even as my coaching career evolved, after the 88 Olympics, um, when for the first time um, I was – that was obviously – the, uh, I've been to the 84 Olympics, but my role was different because I was working with a Swiss swimmer, and I expected to be afar because, when, you know. But at 88, I was with the U.S. team. And when I realized I really had no direct contact with my athlete, um, especially during the competition because of all the safety zones and everything that goes on, and if you really watch it, you don't see any coaches when you watch major international competition. Pete, we've TV. got about They're two minutes left here. Removed. We've got about two minutes left, Pete, so, so go ahead. Okay. But anyways, what I'm saying is you can do it, Andy, and I think you're, you're obligated to do it. And, and I think as a referee, the more you go up the levels, I don't know exactly what the authorities are, you know what I mean, but I know that they have the right to ask a coach, and then you have a right to go over to that coach and stop the, you know, the game and say, you've got some parents over here that are out of hand. Have you, done, have you done that, Tony? Have you actually gone up to a coach and said, we've got to call a timeout here that you've got parents out of control? Oh, all the time. 
and what happens? Well, no, I mean, the coach is ultimately responsible. And if if the parents don't get under control, the coach leaves and so does the parent. And so that has happened before. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. I would say that I, I've seen that type of control out of soccer, and I'm impressed with it. But I okay? think the thing, yeah, and the thing is, Tony, we're going to let you go here after this is, I, I think it's important, and this is where, you know, in the preseason meeting, when you guys start off the year and you have your meetings, you, you come up with some guy. You talk about how to call plays, you know, and how, what's offsides and all these things, but you've got to decide what's a yellow card, what's a red card. You've got to talk about sportsmanship a lot more. And these things, oh, need, these things need to be addressed. That's where I, I mean, quite frankly, I come in and talk about this stuff all the time. And these things need to be addressed with the coaches and with the parents. Tony, thank you for your call, sir. Good, good luck. Hey, do me a favor. Take those Tootsie Pops to to the next game you ref and call back and let me know how that goes. Let me know what happens. I'll sure, I'll sure do it. Thank you, guys. Okay, thank you very much. You know, Pete, we're going to wrap it up here. This, this has been an interesting conversation. I know there are a lot of people who have been listening didn't want to call in who are dealing with this. So your suggestion, we've got about a minute left for you here. What would you tell a parent when a situation like this is brought up to them? How should they address it? And which situation are we? What we started the conversation out with? Just, just there's some kind of abusive situation going on. What would you say to them? Abuse. I'd be pulling my child immediately till I got to the bottom of it. If I thought it was abuse, okay, and I would be simply telling them, "You're not going back until I get clarification." Okay, I, I earlier said you need to make sure you have as a parent the communication that your child should be able to get in that car and be able to tell you what went on and as much as i agree you want to talk to them about how their day went but you know you need the question of did you have fun today that's an important question and that should be the most important one pete listen my my good friend thank you for joining me this morning my good friend pete malone olympic swim coach hall of fame swim coach coached for 45 years here in kansas city kansas city blazers when he coached it it was the top swim club in the country thanks for joining me this morning great advice great feedback and uh enjoy your grandchildren Thank you, Andy. I'm sports, psycholo- I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs here every Sunday from 7 to 8 a.m. If you want to get a hold of me, you can reach me at my office, 816-561-5556. I deal with these issues all the time. Love to talk to you about it. Follow me on Twitter at drjsportspsych. You can send me an email at my website, which is winnersunlimited.com at drj at winnersunlimited.com. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next Sunday here on the Leader in Sports, Sports Radio 10 WHP.